Hi, and welcome to Top in Tech. Today, we're going to complete our mini-series on 2024, the year of electoral change. In the previous two episodes, we've covered off the UK general election, the US presidential elections, and today, we're going to focus on the European Parliament elections. These are due to take place between the 6th and the 9th of June next year across 27 different EU countries, and they'll lead to a new political balance in the European Parliament and a new set of commissioners in the European Commission, which is the EU's executive branch. But it's much less binary than the US or the UK. There won't be a new party coming in solo, clearing the decks, and a whole new political agenda. Instead, we'll have another loose coalition formed of the major political families of the centre-left, the centre, and the centre-right. It is, however, a significant moment for policy. It hits the reset button on the EU's policy machine and it fires a starting gun for a whole new range of legislative agendas that will play out over the following five years. And this begs the question for tech and digital policy. Will the EU's tech clash continue with the same momentum after the elections and what form might it take? My name is Colin Darcy, Senior Practice Director at Global Council and the regular host of this podcast. I'm joined today by Jack Keevil, Senior Associate in our Brussels office, who's going to take us through this today. So thank you, Jack, for joining us. If we could just start with expanding a little bit on some of the context that I, I gave just then, can you just give an overview of what listeners should expect for next year, what changes and what doesn't change within the EU institutions following the elections? Sure. So, I mean, as you've already hinted at, the picture is actually quite varied in Brussels. We don't have a wholesale changing of the guard in the way that we do in, in, in some other places. So you get quite a varied picture. If we start with member states, for example, in the Council of the European Union, there, the Council is, is, is the institution that kind of evolves kind of continuously and gradually over time as individual member state governments change, ministers are appointed, taken away, and, and so on and so forth. So there, there are a few elections in between that, will, that might change the, the constellation a bit. I think the most notable one's got Polish coming up in a few months' time. But overall, the council is quite a stable thing to be dealing with. The one post in there that will be up for grabs as, well, at least the Council of the European Union, technically a slightly different institution, but we can gloss over that for now, is, is the president of the council, not the council presidency, of course. But again, this is a different rabbit hole we can, we can go down. But the official who presides over meetings of heads of state and governments, currently held by Charles Michel, uh, a Belgian politician who is not terribly popular. And so you'd think perhaps is not very likely to continue, but it's a relatively, you know, there have not been many post orders for this particular thing either. So there's not a huge amount of data and kind of precedent to make many judgments on. But I think we, most people would probably expect him to move on to a different job and be replaced by different presidents. The College of Commissioners, so the European Commission, will see pretty uh, significant change, I think. It's quite normal for some of the current commission to be sort of rolled over into the next one. Often they'd want to have a bit of a promotion, a slightly expanded mandate, where we be given different portfolio altogether. But there will be a lot of, of, of new faces you can expect there, partly because they're appointed by national governments, despite what the European Parliament would like to how, like the system to work, the national governments will have, have the say and through sort of a horse trading or rounds and rounds of, of horse trading will come up with a college of 27 to oversee the executive branch. I think the, the, the most significant one is the president's role, 
currently have the Ursula von der Leyen from Germany. A lot of people would find it quite normal if she were to continue, I think, but she's no, by no means a consensus candidate. And there's also other sort of moving pieces, like and in a sense, a kind of a backup job in the, the shape of NATO Secretary General, which will also come up next year, around about the kind of time that she would need to move into that role if um, she were not to, come in, to continue with the commission. And then finally, if we look at the European Parliament, obviously parliamentary elections are the sort of the main main events in the middle of next year and we'd expect quite a quite a hefty churn there as well in terms of who's sitting as as members of the European Parliament um, I think typically you could expect anywhere between a third or maybe even half kind of continue depending on the year and where people are in their careers and this kind of thing but obviously a substantial substantial change overall in that institution too great so lots of moving pieces there so less change on the member state side that we we expect potentially a new president of the council. A lot of change within the European Commission, even though there aren't elections to the European Commission, they're going to be appointed and um, approved by the European Parliament. And some faces will remain familiar, but most will change. And then a lot of churn within the European Parliament itself. But ultimately, it isn't the case, as I said at the start, we have a massive clear out. It's not that, say, the centre-right EPP, who are the largest political group and have been for as long as I can remember, in the European Parliament, they're not going to just clear out all of the socialists or the centre-left parties and form a new EPP administration within the European Commission with a majority in the Parliament. They will still work together in a consensual manner. So the centre-right EPP will still, on a case-by-case basis, approve legislation at the European Parliament with the centre-left and with other political groups, and that's likely to continue. Likewise, the next College of Commissioners will be a patchwork of representatives from different political families and different political traditions representing across the different 27 EU member states. Go a little bit deeper into that, Jack. What can we see, although with the caveats that I've just made, there will be some change and obviously the larger the group is, the more influential they become in in securing their own changes to legislation, their own legislative agenda. So what changes can we see looking forward in that balance of power between political groups from what has happened in national elections very recently or what we expect to happen over the coming months? So I think you're right to say that it's, you know, it's a very consensual system and will still and will remain that way. And I think within the parliament and the balance of the groups, again, that sort of dynamic will be maintained. But there can be, you know, if you were to rank the groups in sort of size order, maybe one goes up a little, one goes down a little, different coalitions then become possible on an issue by issue basis. I think there's a few caveats to this question as well. And obviously we're still quite a long way away from, from election day. It's, it's June next year, so almost, almost a whole year away still. And a lot can happen in that time. Um, there's a few things to bear in mind, like turnouts, voter turnout in member states for European elections is traditionally very, very low. So it can be hard to sort of really gauge what impact that has on voter behavior. And there's another like, sort of another rule of thumb that we usefully apply is that often sort of European elections, when they're kind of that disconnected from the national electoral cycle, they serve as a bit of a free hit of the government of the day. So you might be in power, you might be doing a great job, but actually still voters want to kind of lash out on, on something rather and you find, uh, you find yourself losing seats in, in the European Parliament. But that's also quite a helpful kind of analytical sort of rule of thumb for us to apply when we're looking at it, because we can then look at the different groups the different uh, sizes of the national delegations within the groups, who's in power, who's in not, and make some reasonably well-informed, educated guesses about who we can expect to gain and lose. 
So I think given all those caveats and sort of dynamics, I think we can expect people like the S&D group, so the center-left, they're a very large German delegation. Germans in, in Germany, the SPD are in power, perhaps not hugely popular. And so that large group within the S&D group, that large delegation even within the S&D group may well be expected to, to diminish. Uh, I think there's then also a question whether they can make up for that with gains from other center-left parties across Europe. Given the sort of trend in recent years and the sort of decline of the center-left, that might be unlikely, but you, maybe it could be re- reversed at some points. I think similarly, if you look at the ger- other German coalition parties, uh, the Greens will also probably be bracing themselves for losses. Another, that's another delegation that's very important in the group. Can they pick it up elsewhere? Still to be seen. And on the theme of parties in power, the Renew Europe group, which is obviously based around French President Emmanuel Macron's party, they will also likely be quite nervous given turmoil in France and sort of domestic unpopularity for them. And obviously as another major delegation in the group, they we worried. So that's, I mean, there's a few that are kind of perhaps looking at losing seats. So then where are the gains going to be? Well, they could be within the same groups, just from different national delegations, but groups like maybe the ECR group. So this is the kind of the, the group that was initially formed by the British conservatives in conjunction with Pol- one of the Polish conservative parties. They still very much exist. I'm probably thinking in terms of sort of business as usual, the, the Poles are pretty quite confident and they'll be able to hoover up a kind of relatively eclectic mix of more or less like-minded groups from around Europe to kind of keep at least the sort of size that they are. There's always talk of having, you know, do we get some far-right, center-right, populist, right-wing alliance? There's all sorts of reasons why that hasn't worked, typically because nationalists don't get on very well with other nationalists, and also positions on relations with Russia proven quite uh, divisive in that camp, just because some have closer links than others with Moscow and quite different views. So I think there's all sorts of reasons where that will once again fail to materialize. So it's so I think, as I say, we've got this kind of, some will be up, some will be down, but the overall dynamic will be quite similar, quite consensual still. And sort of these kind of case-by-case coalitions will be where it relatively subtly expresses itself once, uh, once the new members are in place. So it sounds like a bit of a shift rightwards is, is on the cards. But as you point out, that could take many different forms. So we could see the centre-right EPP group get bigger, but we could also see the ECR, which sort of sits to the right of them, get bigger. And we could see some nationalist parties get bigger, but without the nationalist group necessarily being very well coordinated. So let's look into, we've, we've done the politics, Jack, let's move into the policy. Under this commission and supported by the European Parliament, the so-called digital transition tech and digital policy. It's been a major priority of the Commission, one of the headline priorities that they have pushed. And much of this has been fueled by the the tech lash, the reaction against predominantly US tech platforms who have become the largest companies in the world. Would be interesting to explore with you as I started with the podcast about whether you see the tech lash continuing to drive policy in Brussels or whether we'll see alternatively what happened a little bit with the financial services agenda when the, when the banks were in the firing line after the financial crash, they faced a lot of regulatory reform, but it sort of petered out after a sort of five, six year, seven year sort of process. And I wondered whether we might be seeing, seeing the same or whether you see scope for continued momentum targeting the tech sector under the next commission. So I think the, the tech lash, such as it was, 
as as you suggest, it was largely about fixing the problems that policymakers in Europe believe to have been caused by US tech giants. And this alongside a broader exercise about establishing kind of basic ground rules in what was seen as a bit of a wild west, where there were no really common sort of rules across the board. All this was a major focus of this commission, and that mostly took the form of the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. And I think that's an exercise that will will continue in the, the sort of implementation and enforcement of these two you know, really, really important piece of legislation will be kind of an important test in one way of how successful the commission has been in addressing, you know, the, in addressing these problems. It would also be a bit of a kind of sink for resources because, you know, they have to dedicate quite a lot of time and energy and what staff essentially to following up on these things and building up their expertise in relatively complicated areas like analyzing algorithms and, and, and so on and so forth. So there's that for sure. There's the, the tech lash continued is one strand of work that we'll see. But I think we'll also see a shift in focus away from kind of problems caused by big platforms towards kind of consumer focused or consumer experience related questions. So, I mean, for, for instance, some of the prep work is already underway on this. So we've got the kind of like a fairness check, as they call it, on seeing whether sort of online consumer rules are sort of fit for purpose. There's also more and more talk about child safety online in Brussels. This will come as a bit, perhaps a bit of a surprise to people who pay a lot of attention to member states where it's been an important issue for quite some time. But Brussels has really sort of lagged behind on, on this issue. I think that's recognized now as well. So that's going to come well up the agenda, I think. And we've heard officials citing the issue of age verification as really being identified as a key issue that will then solve many other problems. So I think we've got this, is, that's the kind of form we'll take, this, the shift from big tech platform issues moving towards something that's perhaps also a bit closer to the electorate in the shape of these sort of consumer-related and child safety type questions. So another issue, Jack, that's bubbling away in the background is that of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, and there's due to be an evaluation of it next year. Given the timing is quite something, you have an evaluation of the most famous piece of EU digital legislation at the same time that we have a whole new political leadership within the EU institutions, it does seem to point towards the idea that we could be having a GDPR 2.0 if you are the next digital commissioner coming into post next year and you're looking for an an interesting policy agenda to make your name against, then that seems like an obvious uh, starting point. So do you agree with that? Do you think that is that is going to come down the tracks and companies should prepare accordingly? And if so, what sorts of issues can we anticipate such a review or reform focusing on? I think it will. I think that's quite clear. I mean, the, the, the one question is kind of on timing. You know, if the commission presents their evaluation of the GDPR such as, you know, as it is up until now, what kind of problems do they identify and what kind of solutions then do they propose as a result of that? And do they do that at the same time or do they take, you know, a little bit more time also for the commissioners to be settled into their jobs and will there be, you know, will there be a kind of reflection period and so on and so forth? But I think at some point there will be a bit, you know, a, a real, you know, attempt to address whatever issues they do find. I think one one thing we've already seen from this commission is, of course, the attempt to address what we might term the Irish question with this kind of procedural proposal to make sure other, when you have a cross-border GDPR enforcement case, that 
other member state data protection authorities are also are also involved in a way that they where they believe that their their concerns are addressed. And this is essentially in response to criticism of the Irish Data Protection Agency, which obviously hosts many of the major tech platforms. So that's one thing, but that doesn't touch the core of the the GPR itself and how it functions and the principles and and, and this kind of thing. And I think if we look at perhaps then the shift I mentioned before towards these kind of consumer experience type questions, online fairness online, then it's also hard to avoid the topic of online advertising, which is, you know, it's a part of all of our experience of using the internet in whatever whatever form we need. And there questions around sort of data, consent for gathering data, these these have really sort of surfaced in discussions in Brussels and kind of like the conference scene in these formal events even organized by the commission as as an area of concern. That's in, a, in addition to things like child protection, age verification, which also have like data privacy uh, implications too. And so I think the extent to the extent that these are GDPR related issues, which certainly are, um, and there's other legislation too, which will also have to be looked at things like the e-privacy directive, which would come as part of that part of that bundle, I'd imagine. You have to you have to think these would be strong candidates for closer scrutiny by the commission in the next next mandate. And of course, anything to do with the consents and the, the data gathering and the online advertising sort of system will be hugely controversial because for a lot of stakeholders, that's kind of how the internet economy makes its money. So watch the space. So we think reform is coming and advertising is an area where we could see specific measures proposed. And you could imagine that we've seen in both in the Digital Markets Act, Digital Services Act, the European Parliament at the time is very pushing for measures around uh, targeted advertising. So assuming that the makeup of the parliament doesn't dramatically change the political sentiment within it, you could imagine the majorities that are already there and the commission will be anticipating those as it thinks through what it, what it might propose as GDPR 2.0. Let's go to another headline issue, which is the EU's AI Act and AI policy. Let's just assume that that is definitely done before the European Parliament elections. I think most people expect it will be, although it's not certain that it definitely will be. Assuming it is done, do you think there is more that the EU institutions might try to do in and around AI in the next commission under the next parliament? So for example, those are the issues bubbling around at the moment around copyrights and how copyrighted works are used by generative AI systems. Or indeed, there's a lot of talk at the moment about national, regional, or even global AI regulators, something that wasn't really explored as part of the proposals under the AI Act. So is it going to come up again? And do you get a sense, Jack, of where it might go? So I think there's been so much hype around artificial intelligence that if it even lives up to a part of that, or to a certain, you know, a small degree of that, in terms of how widely it's adopted and used in, in Europe, then there's little to no chance that this is the end of the story. You know, this widespread use will reveal new problems and there'll be a sort of political impetus to, to do something. Some issues are already on the table. I mean, you, you, you touched on the copyright issue, uh, the sort of the creative sectors and entertainment industry have been very, very vocal about these issues around copyright. Some of that's being addressed through, uh, you know, negotiations between right holders like music labels and then AI companies. But I think the, the threat of a kind of a campaign for a solution to those disputes will surely remain on the table for as long as those are going on. And I think it would be not difficult to expect that these kind of industry negotiations don't solve everything either. I think on that front, that's still obviously very much an issue that, that remains on the table. 
I think there's, there's also the question of generative AI. One of the outstanding questions in the current AI Act as it stands is how to deal with it. Do we take a kind of parliament's uh, sort of tech-specific approach to it or do we do original commission-proposed regime enough to sort of cover off most of the issues that were raised by it anyway? So, I mean, and that will still be there. You know, if that's still an unknown thing, perhaps it, will, perhaps it won't be. But then there's also other concerns about its use in cybersecurity type questions where it's seen as a bit of a, bit of a game changer in some ways. And then that raises, raises separate issues around like security and supply chains in, in the market for those products, which takes on an extra dimension given, you know, the ongoing Russian threat to Europe as perceived in Brussels. So something in this kind of area, perhaps linked to broader cybersecurity agenda, is also very much possible. And then I think we'll, we can also expect a lot of other initiatives to increase the basically to level up Europe in this in in this in the sector. Whether that's more sandboxes, more sort of co-regulatory ways to deal with whatever issues arise, more research funding, this kind of thing. I think that's also a kind of a reasonable expectation on the agenda, and that's tying into the idea of needing to improve Europe's competitiveness vis-a-vis the rest of the world, which I think is not going to go away anytime soon. And there's a link, I suppose, between the legislative negotiations we're talking about at the moment in the AI Act and what might come under the next commission. You could imagine a solution whereby the co-legislators decide not to have detailed rules about generative AI under the current legislation because they just haven't had the time to think through in detail what those rules should look like and bring in some form of review clause which charges the commission with bringing forward a proposal within a certain period of time under the next uh, mandate. So you can imagine that sort of dynamic being at play as well. The final one, Jack, I'd just like to uh, get your view on is so-called fair share, which is a bit of a similar dynamic to what you just described around on copyright, where the dynamic there is between the tech platforms and rights holders. The dynamic here is between telecoms operators and tech platforms. And telecoms operators arguing there should be a greater contribution towards the cost of telecoms networks from some of the larger data users of those networks, i.e. data intensive applications such as video sharing platforms or video on demand platforms. This has been a pretty controversial and vociferous debate between those two industry groups over the past 12 months. What do you think are the prospects for this sort of proposal getting into the agenda of the next commission after the elections? I think it's clear that the groundwork is being done. Obviously, we had the consultation exercise and there's uh, so earlier this year, and then there's broader thinking on the part of the commission about what to do about the telecom sector, which they do see as a, you know, a strategically important sector for Europe and want to, and realize that it's going to perhaps look a bit different five, 10 years down the line, and they need to realize, need to work out what to, what to do to support it. So, and that's, and that's a kind of a, that would be a whole host of things beyond just the sort of fair share or network fees debate as it's sometimes also known. But on the fair share question, this is not being done without internal resistance. I mean, the, the, the commission really doesn't speak with, with one voice on this. And the fact that it's, you have, you have this internal split, which is kind of occasionally bubbles over into public, into the public view uh, between, say, Commissioner Thierry Breton and um, Executive Vice President Margarita Vestea. But then you also have this, as, as, again, as you mentioned, this very sort of vociferous, noisy public debate with each camp, you know, taking aim at the other and really not agreeing on, on very much. Um, and because of this very sort of turbulent political picture, then you need a figure who can 
within the commission, you can really provide the leadership that you need to, to steer that kind of thing through and you spend some of their, their capital to, to defend it. So it depends on having a figure that th- we come back to this question of what changes in Brussels, what doesn't, and then we get really into the kind of the question of the, the individual characters. And so if, if, if Chair Breton continues, you can fully expect him to take up, to keep pressing the issue. He's been talking about the need for a European Telecoms Act, which which surely cover this issue among among others. Or, you know, there needs to be a successor of, you know, of, of, of the same mind, of which it's not obvious who that would be at the moment. But to Breton, I mean, there'd be this there'd be quite a lot of opposition. So he, he was, he's made a little secret of his own ambitions to, for a promotion, perhaps to the highest level, shall we say, in the commission. But that would not likely be well received by many other member states, having, having had a German commissioner, you know, a big member state, then another big member state commissioner, French commissioner, who's, been, who's made no secret or very unsubtly pushed sort of a national agenda as well in the, within the commission. There'll be a lot of opposition to him actually getting that job. So I think it's very much, very much in the balance and depends a lot on the personalities to end up in the college at the, as the, when the dust settles. So with a lot of those issues that we've talked about today, Jack, whether that's GDPR, AI, you talked about issues around child protection online. These are broader trends within the policymaking bubble in Brussels that are likely to result in some form of policy agenda, maybe legislative proposals regardless almost of who takes those key roles as commissioner or indeed as chair of some of the relevant committees in the European Parliament. But this one on fair share is very personality driven and the fate of Breton and to an extent von der Leyen as president who's sort of sponsored Breton and some of his activities is very important for determining which way this goes. Indeed, as you, you point out, let's say you have someone of the disposition of Andris Ansip, who was a previous commissioner in charge of the digital agenda um, under President Juncker, the disposition of that individual is unlikely to really push for a fair share agenda. He's obviously not coming back, but someone like him from perhaps the Baltics or uh, a Nordic member state are unlikely to follow the agenda that Breton would, which would obviously be a relief technology platforms and obviously not to telecoms operators. So Jack, thank you for taking us through that. There's obviously lots that will emerge and evolve over the next 12 months as we're following this all the way through the end of the current political agenda in Brussels, the European elections, the vote for the next commission president, the commissioner hearings towards the back end of next year. There's a lot that we're going to be following. So if you are interested in this and you're interested in the analysis, not just in tech media telecoms, but more broadly across the policy agenda in Brussels, you can find the contact details of Jack and other Brussels-based colleagues on our website at www.global-council.com or you can use the link in the podcast notes. Thank you very much for joining this week. Next week, we are going to look at policy environment for the gaming sector following the earth-shattering events that we've seen with Microsoft Activision. So thanks for joining and hopefully you'll join us to hear that discussion next week too. Bye-bye.